This morning we're going to continue our study in 2 Thessalonians. If you want to begin to make your way to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Friends, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift uh, from us to your family. If you don't have one, uh, if you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know how to locate 2 Thessalonians. And then as we spend our time uh, in the Word today, just know that the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. Let me read for us these couple of verses and then call us once more uh, to prayer and ask for God's blessing upon this time. Paul writes and says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good work and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me once more? God, as we come into this, we recognize that, that Paul is essentially giving them a, a prayer report of those things that he has uh, prayed for them, those things that he has asked for them. And so, God, this morning, there are any number of things uh, that we have on our hearts and in our lives that we'd love to pray for, we'd love to sit and think about. Uh, but that as we as a body have opportunity this morning to sit, to reflect, to think, to pray, to consider, and then to allow your Holy Spirit to apply these couple of verses. And so God, I pray that you would be speaking to each of us individually, that your Spirit would be rooting out those things in our life that are sin, those things in our life that are doubt, our temptation, our tendency not to believe the promises of your word. God, the various distractions and stressors and frustrations that exist for us outside of this place in this time, might we just suspend those to hear from you and to focus on your word? God, as Justin prayed a few minutes ago, we want to pray for Highland Terrace as they're in the middle of their worship service this morning. Uh, the The battle with cancer that Chet has coming up before him the difficulties this church will have replacing the various open positions on their staff. We pray against conflict that could come their way. God, we pray against factionalism. God, we pray against uh, people seeking to seek the favor of man. God, I pray that this would be a time that in the difficulties of life, that they would see this trauma, that they would see this difficulty this trial, producing them endurance and endure steadfastness, that they would be so incredibly well-rooted in your word that as a body here in Greenville, Texas, that they would light a fuse for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would see hundreds and hundreds of people come to faith during this time. God, you accomplish amazing feats through an unlikely and improbable means. And so, God, that's our heart, that's our prayer for them today. That even today, in the midst of sadness and disappointment and questions of why, that they would begin to see the early seeds of revival playing out and growing and being healthy and vibrant in that body. And that's what we want to see. So, God, help us to think for practical ways that we can support them. Help us to be caught up often interceding for them. Got to be champions for the Haney family, for this church. God, we love you and we're thankful you give us time this morning to study your word. God, I pray that you would do a special work in our hearts, that you would guide, bless, and direct us. 
in all things. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So as we come back to uh, 2 Thessalonians, you'll remember that as Paul started this letter back in verse 3, he said, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And then he talked about how great they are and how vibrant and growing their faith was. And then what he did was he transitioned there in verse 3 through verse 10, and he began to essentially say, y'all, this is how things are going to play out. This is how things are going to be in the end. So essentially, the way things are going to go, that there's going to be a certain outcome for those who place their faith and trust in Jesus, and there's going to be a certain outcome for those who don't. And so for those who place their faith and trust in Jesus, he's going to essentially come and he's going to take us to be with him, that we're going to receive the reward for what Christ has done on our behalf. And then last week we looked at it briefly, what's going to happen to those who reject the gospel, who reject Jesus, and and what we read is they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. They're going to be separated for all time away from God, away from his love, and they're going to experience what it's like no longer to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. So Paul essentially takes all of these things, they've got all of these things kept in their mind, and he says essentially on the basis of these things, you have this understanding that ultimately this is going to be the outcome. This is going to be the outcome for you, this is going to be the outcome for those who reject Christ, this is going to be the outcome. So on the basis of all these things, we are praying hard for you now what's interesting about this what's interesting about this is that paul says listen the outcome the end is set like it's not changing it is immutable nothing different is going to happen there but this doesn't change the necessity the requirement for me to pray for you like just because god has written the end of the story like jesus is going to come back he's going to judge the world in righteousness doesn't change the insistence in the determination with which Paul engages in prayer. Now, some of us, what we need to hear in that is that there are certain situations in our life, and man, you don't know how these things are going to play out. You don't know if your wayward child is eventually going to come back to faith. You don't know if your spouse's heart is going to return to you. You don't know how these things are going to play out, but even in the things we know how they're written, Paul gives determination to prayer. Should we not much more pray for those things that we're unaware of, those things that we don't know? And so he gives us, in some sense, this urgency, the insistence, the repetitive nature of prayer. He says, to this end we pray for you. Look, we know how these things are going to go, but this is our prayer for you, or this is, in essence, our prayer prayer report for you. He says, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Do you hear that? That he may make you worthy of... Of your calling? Now, what is their call to? Their call is to be faithful to God in all things. Now, how has he accomplished this? Uh, for many of you, look back on just the, the mirrored page in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. This is what Paul said. Now, may the peace of God himself sanctify you completely, make you holy completely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So we get into the middle of this and Paul says that God would make you worthy of your calling. The calling to which he has called you. This upward calling of Christ. And so the good news for us, in a sense, is that he actually has made you worthy. And over the course of your life, the prayer Paul has for the Thessalonians, and my prayer for us, is that he would continue to make us holy. 
Essentially, it's this. That in salvation, when you came to know Jesus, you were positionally sanctified, made holy. There was nothing unrighteous in you before God because you had Christ's blood and his holiness covering you. So even though you had been a hapless screw-up over the duration of your life, you had been an adulterer, you had been a liar, you had been a thief, you had been a deceiver, you had been a mocker, you had been a disbeliever, you had been a habitually good person and relied on your goodness to get you into heaven, even though all these things, in Christ, when you believed in him, you were sealed by the power of his blood, he wiped all those things away, and your righteousness is borrowed from Christ. He has made you worthy in Christ. Do you hear that? How many of us, how many of us find our sense of self-worth daily on something other than the blood of Jesus? Like your boss, he finds your worth on how much money you make for the business. So the worth that he assigns to you is based on your utility and your hard work and your ability to say, honey, I'm going to be home late tonight. Like that's why he finds you worthy. That's why he finds you valuable. Stockholders, your kids, your kids in some sense, if you're a parent, they find your worth on your ability to lead them to do fun things. So when the fun things stop, your worth declines. Like if you've been on a road trip before, are we there yet? Your worth is at an all-time low. And it briefly climbs as you get closer to your destination. But like all destinations, you're going to get there and it's going to be a crushing disappointment, be it Disneyland, Disney World, or Grand Canyon, or wherever. Your worth, according to the kingdom of God, is not based on the satisfaction of the people around you. It's based on the good thing Jesus did for you. And that worth doesn't diminish. And that worth doesn't go away. Listen, Paul writing to the church in Philippi, Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, had these words to them that were so encouraging for them, and I hope they're encouraging for you. In Philippians 1.6, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God is not done with you. Now listen, I don't know where you are in your trajectory of life. Maybe what you've done is last week you felt worthy because you find yourself in the word. You're reflecting upon your time in corporate worship with us last week. But this week, as things are mounting up, you're beginning to have this sense at which I'm not sure I actually am worthy. Can I just tell you candidly that when a Christian hears the word within them that they are not worthy, that this is not the conviction of the Spirit, that these are the lies of the enemy. The conviction of the Spirit reminds you of your worth in Jesus. The lies of the enemy tell you you're not worth it, you don't really believe in him, and he wants nothing to do with you. Like we see just a couple of places within the New Testament. I can think of two. In Ephesians 6, in Ephesians 6 and verse 11, We read this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the devil is set out like he wakes up tomorrow morning, if he sleeps, probably not. And so he's got the five-hour energies on, on IV. And so he has Joel in his sights, right? And so he has schemes that he is going after Joel with. And so when those don't work or he finds those working, he switches to Melissa. And Melissa's wearing matching footwear with me, so we know it's working, right? He has schemes, he has plans, he has plots. He wants to see your life crushed and laid waste. He wants to remind you of all of your failures, remind you of none of the benefits of Jesus so that you feel unworthy. Because when you begin to focus on your perceived personal sense and lack of worth, 
based on the testimony of others, based on your inward testimony, based upon how you feel, you begin to think God feels the same way towards you. The schemes of the devil. Peter says, in 1 Peter 5 and 8, he says, Behold, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I was like, this is his hobby. This is what he does. This is, this is how he gets his jollies. This is how he enjoys life. He knows the end is written, but he has no, no compunction in him that says, ah, I'm just going to call in sick today. Each and every day, he finds vigor in destroying the lives of Christians. He wants to devour you. He wants to lead you astray. And one of the places he will start in your life is leading you to believe you're not worth it. There's nothing worthy or valuable in you. And he will echo that refrain through the mouths of the people nearest you. People you look up to. People you respect. So he'll come to you and he'll have someone say to you, you're not worth it. You're not valuable. You're not precious. You know what you are? You are a serious mistake. You know what you are? You are an embarrassment to the cause of Christ. What have we read here? He is faithful to complete. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. What have we read here? God is the one making us worthy. So the question becomes, does God fail? Certainly the answer from a Christian perspective has to be no. Our God does not fail. Therefore, we are found to be worthy in as much as we are found to be in him. Now, what's he going to do with us in the middle of us being worthy for him? Do we sit around in a club, sip coffee, eat cake, and say, uh, Jeremy, you're so worthy. Robert, you're so worthy. The Stutzmans, collectively, you guys are worthy. Kind hearts, you guys are worthy. Let's talk about how worthy we are together. No, what he does is he takes people who are made worthy on the basis of the blood of Jesus, and he commissions us to get to work. He says he takes these worthy people, and then he says, and may he fulfill every resolve for good work and every work of faith By what? Everybody say, by his power. Listen, we bought our kids a couple of these power wheels, and I'm sure if you're a young parent, you have contemplated this. Let me just tell you now, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm going to save you a lot of money right now, and you're going to be in the same position, okay? Power wheels work well for 20 minutes. They work really well for 20 minutes. Do you know how long your children want them to work well? Forever. There is no end to their delight and joy in wanting the power wheels to work well. So listen, you're going to hit the end of 20 minutes. You're going to be down some dirt road. You're going to be in East Tawakini, right? You're going to be way over here. Like cell phones don't work in this place. And this is where you're going to be. And you're going to be hanging off the edge of a cliff and the battery's going to die. Home's over there. You can't leave this thing because the gnashing and tearing of flesh that your toddler will engage in simply is not worth it. So what you're going to have to do is to assume this position. And for 57 miles, you're going to have to do this. (laughs) Oh my goodness, my back. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to have a real come to Jesus moment in that. You're going to lead your child to faith and they're going to rebel and go wayward. But 57 miles later... You know, the worst thing about it is you're pushing this and your toddler the whole time is apparently pathologically incapable of doing this with a steering wheel. 
They only know how to do this with a steering wheel. So you're going to push, you're going to fall, you're going to land, you're going to scrape both knees. It's really, let me just save you a lot of time. Don't get that thing. Get something with no engine, no motor, no battery. It's so much lighter. Uh, And you'll push it in 57 miles and just be smiling the whole time. I love pushing this thing. You're going to push it regardless. Get the one without the battery. (laughs) Now listen. When we come to passages like this, we get this sense, okay, okay, okay. I've got to do good works and and I've got to accomplish uh, works of faith. But we miss it if we miss the understanding that it is by his power. By his power. Our experience over the course of life shows us that we only accomplish what we're willing to suffer for. We only accomplish what we're willing to work hard for. But what we read within this passage is that God is the one who is at work. He is the one bringing the power to bear on our resolve, on our desires, and bringing the power to bear on us actually accomplishing these tasks. Isn't this great news? Like, this is the thing. So we get into the middle of this, and, and we all kind of catch ourselves in the midst of the I don't want to's, and I'm too tired, and I'm not sure if I can do this. The good news for the Christian, I think, is that he writes in the middle of this, is it doesn't matter if you're too tired. It doesn't matter if you don't want to, because God is the one accomplishing the work by his power. Now listen, Paul writing in Ephesians 2 after he's got through this whole deal and says, it's by grace you have been saved and not by faith and not on the basis of works so that no one may boast. In verse 10 of chapter 2, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, everybody say, good works. Created in him beforehand that we should walk in them. So listen to this. Before you ever came to faith in Jesus... Before you ever came to faith in Jesus, God prepared before all these things good works for you to accomplish. Now, this isn't some type of generic understanding that he just kind of has, you know, this Ikea version of good furniture that's out there, and that's the good works that Tom and Judy are supposed to do, and that's the good works that Amy and Matt are supposed to do, and that's the good works that the Moors are supposed to do. Now, listen to this. When God knew Linda, when God knew Tom, when God knew you, knew your strengths, knew your failures, knew all of your interests, knew all of the things you were good at and not good at, in knowing all those things about you, he created good works for you and only you he created good works for you and for only you so awaiting you out there tomorrow morning this afternoon even here while you're struggling to stay awake right there are good works for you to do so what does that do in you like is there any curiosity is there any desire in you is there any drive to you if the answer to that is no recognize this you don't need more of you and your own ingenuity and your own power and your own drive you need more of god's desire because he is the one giving power it's god's power at work in you for every resolve and for every good work of faith listen this is amazing thing of what he's done and what he's accomplished in us it is god and and philippians 2 13 It says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. A stinking men. Woo! Man, I get worn out. It's such an encouragement to me that God is the one who's both willing and working for his good pleasure. He gives me the drive and desire. So I recognize anytime there's no drive or desire, I'm seeking to live in my own flesh, live in my own power, live in my own ability, instead of in his equipping and in the drive and the power of his will. But check this out. We don't do this as individuals. 
So even though there are individual works that God has laid up for you to do, we do this in concert. We get this awesome opportunity to do this together as a part of the most epic group project known to man, spoken of as the church. And this is why we readily pray for other churches. And this is why we drive at the idea of community. You need to be in life, live together with other people. Why? Because you irritate them and they irritate you. And all those things drive you towards holiness. It's good, and that's the way he's created us to be. Daniel James Brown wrote this book about the 1936 Olympic rowing team out of, uh, it's called Boys in the Boat. And so he's describing this ragtag group of kids. Some of them came from poverty. Some of them came from families who couldn't read. But they all find themselves living up there on the sound. And they're preparing, and they're, they're working hard. And what they want to do is to win rowing events and while they're in there and the eight men are in this boat and they're rowing what he says they want to get at is what he refers to as the swing okay and listen the swing is when all of their oars are entering and leaving the water at the same time and they all are using the same force to accomplish their tasks and when they do this it makes the rowing and the racing efficient beautiful and winning what we need as a church is to find our swing. We have people who kill it and they get it done in Awana and Rich 5-6 and kids and CR and missions and uh, youth Sunday school. I mean, you just go on and name it. We have people that are going to get out this week and, and work for tools for school, equipping the kids of our community. But in my mind, that doesn't look like finding our swing. In my mind, that looks like a whole bunch of people finding their different niches and working in silos instead of working together. Like I'm not really sure what this is going to look like for us, but I'm so incredibly convinced that the best days for us and for any church are represented in all of us pulling all of our might in the same direction at the same time, moving forward in unison. That's what he wants for us. You see, the power he gives to Jordan on his birthday to accomplish his good works and tasks and Trevor on their brother birthday for his tasks today, it's one in the same power. It's one in the same ability. And so the God who's giving power to Jordan and to Trevor and to all of us at the same time, he delights in seeing us work well together and doing that in the same direction. Will we give ourselves to this task? And will we submit ourselves to being willing to ask questions about what works and what doesn't work? Like not every ministry we've ever done at Ridgecrest has to be around when Jesus returns. It just doesn't. Jesus isn't going to show up and be like, I cannot believe they canceled Sunday night suppers. It's the worst. Like I'm going to start on the north side of the town and work my way south. Maybe by the time I get here, they'll get it back again. Jesus, he's not primarily concerned with the ministries and the programs that we have going on. What he's concerned with is our love for one another and that we're all moving forward at the same time in the same direction under his power. Now, what's the outcome? What's the outcome? If you think that the outcome becomes church growth and and numbers go crazy and and giving spikes and all these things and all of a sudden I'm driving uh, an Escalade, maybe maybe that's what happens. I've I've never personally wanted an Escalade. I just never have. Land Rover, yes. Escalade, no. Come on now. You should know me better than this. What's the purpose? What's the goal of this? He says, so that the name of Jesus 
may be glorified in you and you in him. That's what we push for. That's what we push for. Whether we have 700 or 20 show up on a Sunday morning, this is what we push for. We want to see Jesus' glory shown in our lives. We want to see him be glorified in all that we do. I want to see him glorified in our words. We want to see him glorified in our actions. We want to see him glorified in our thought patterns. And listen to what he says. You see that there's a reciprocal relationship there. He says, and you in him. And you in him. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says of the disciples, he says, I have given them some of the glory that you have given to me so that they may be one just as you and I are one. There is the possibility for the church, for the believer, pushing in the right direction, equipped in the power of God, that we might be glorified in him. That the glory seen in God and the glory seen on us is in some sense indistinguishable. This is the end to which we press. This is the goal to which we strive. And all this in grace. Boy, that's the best news. Sometimes when I hear messages about work and and we all have to do this, and I I begin to think of all the systems and all the things of how this is going to be put together, and then I begin to think of all the people that are going to argue against it and how difficult it's going to be and what it would look like to reshape this and what it would look like to reshape that. The question becomes in my mind, is it really worth it? Isn't what we're doing now good enough? Isn't what we're doing now accomplishing enough? But then I'm reminded of grace. I'm reminded of the grace that he gets to here at the end. He says, in all this, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer is that we would begin and end with the idea of grace, that our work and our receiving and power from our Lord Jesus Christ is an extension of his grace to us. And that in our ability to work well or work poorly with those brothers and sisters around us, we will do this well only in an experience and an extension of his grace. All is grace. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. God, we're thankful that you give us an opportunity to worship you, to glorify you in all things. And that you even give us the power to do that. We are weak and ineffective on our own. We have a tendency to be wayward and distracted. So God, I pray for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. that your power would be so incredibly mightily at work in us, giving us the desire for good works and driving us toward efforts of faith. Lead us not to an exercise of Christianity that resembles smooth knees and ease, but lead us to an experience of Christianity that looks like sacrifice and things that can only be explained as God showed up. Father, we want to pray for those in this place and in this hearing who do not know your son, Jesus. God, that the first work of his power that they would experience today is the forgiveness of their sins. 
through the perfect, sinless sacrifice, Jesus, who came, who lived, who died, and who rose again. And so, God, I pray that you would lead them in conviction and response, that they today would delight in coming to know Jesus and in salvation in his name. God, we ask and submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.